Welcome to Linworth Road Church, helping people become fully alive, fully mature, and fully on mission. Visit linworthroadchurch.com to learn more. Let's go ahead and sit down and stop being so nice to one another. It's time to get started. I want to welcome you to Linworth Road Church. It's great to be here with you this morning. I just want to say from the start that I, for whatever reason, I've had like a really sore throat this morning and just really dry mouth, so I'm going to be drinking a lot of water. just want to just say that up front. My name's Nicholas Schiavo, and I'm on full-time staff here at Linworth um, as the worship director. I do some other things here at the church, but the main part of my job, the main function of my job is overseeing our music ministry and um, you know, leading our church in, in music and, and things like that. And I'm also a pastor in training here at Linworth Road Church, and so I I get the honor and the privilege to teach and share the Word of God with you this morning. Today we're going to continue in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've very intentionally titled the series, Grow, as you can see on the screen. And the hope is, is that as we work through this book, we've been working through this book chapter by chapter, week in and week out, we've been going verse by verse. The hope is that as we work through this book as individuals and as a church, it would cause us to grow spiritually in the Lord, and it would also cause us to grow closer with one another in unity and in oneness. Well, if you have been coming around for any time now during this series, or if you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, it is no surprise to you that this church was just a mess. This church is riddled with issues. Hopefully you've gotten a pretty good snapshot of what this church is like just from being here. And you know, because of these issues that the Corinthian church was dealing with, this was not an enjoyable letter for Paul to write at all. In fact, you get a sense of where Paul's heart is if you just turn to the next letter in 2 Corinthians that he writes to the Corinthian church. In chapter 2, he sort of talks about the emotion that went behind writing this letter to the Corinthian church. You know, he says that this letter brought him anguish and brought him tears. And the reason why is because he really viewed the Corinthian church as his spiritual offspring. Paul planted the Corinthian church, and so he viewed himself really as the spiritual father of this church. And so by seeing these issues, by recognizing these issues, as the father of this church, as the spiritual father of this church, he decides to have the difficult conversation that I'm sure a lot of us in here have had with our own children when they began to stray from the Lord and began to stray from the teaching that Paul imparted to them. One of the major issues surrounding this church, probably the main issue that this church was struggling with and and just sort of falling in was uh, division. This church was so divided. Uh, And this division manifested itself in many different ways. In chapter 1, at the very beginning of the series, we saw how this church was divided. They would sort of break up into their own little cliques based on which spiritual leader in that church they were the most devoted to. And so you had this group of people in the church that said, you know what, I am completely devoted to Apollos, and I want nothing to do with these other people. And then you had this other group that said, I am completely devoted to the Apostle Paul, and I want to have nothing to do with this other group. And then you had this other group that said, I am completely devoted to Cephas. And so they excluded themselves off from the rest of the church. 
And then you sort of had this like hyper-spiritual Ned Flanders-ish type of group that said, I'm going to write all three of these leaders off because I am only devoted to Jesus. We've also seen in this series how the Corinthians were divided over their view of sex, their view of marriage, their view of Christian liberties. And we've seen so many other examples of how this church was divided. This issue of division is the main reason why Paul is writing this letter to them. Now this word division in the original language that this letter was written in, which was Greek, is this word called, is this word schismata, which is, it's kind of a weird sounding word. Um, It's the word schismata, and it literally means a rip or a tear in something that was once whole, or that is meant to be whole. These different issues, and the issues that we'll see today were ripping at the fabric of the Corinthian church. They were continually dividing this church. Now last week, Pastor Chris took us through the beginning of chapter 11. We saw how chapter 11 took a turn in the book where Paul began to address issues that were concerning their gathering time, their time of worship. And as we'll see today, he is continuing to confront similar issues. So with all of that, will you stand with me in reverence for the word of the Lord as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through 34. If you're going to use the Pew Bible, it's on page 958. I'm going to take my first sip of water here. Okay. Paul writes this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? No. No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? 
Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your wonderful word, Lord. Thank you for revealing yourselves to us in your word, Lord. God, we pray that your word would capture our hearts this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and capture our hearts through your word. God, just as we sang this morning, our hearts are prone to wonder. Lord, we pray that you would capture our hearts this morning. Father, we pray that we would see this passage, Lord, and we would be able to write ourselves into this story. Lord, you would confront areas in our own lives that we weren't even aware of, Father, so that we could repent and grow in you, Father. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your relentless love for us. And we love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Now, if you remember from last week, if you were here last week, if you were able to listen to the message from last week in some way, Chapter 11 starts off pretty good. In verse 2, Paul actually commends the Corinthians. Now, he does go on to correct them in some different areas, like I said earlier, that dealt with the nature of their gatherings. And in each case that he addressed, self-promotion and the neglect of others' well-being were at the forefront of these issues. And today will be very similar. But in this next section, however... Paul's tone sharpens drastically. His rebuke becomes far more severe towards this church. At the beginning of our section today, we see that it starts off completely different than the beginning of chapter 11. Again, Paul commends them in verse 2, but in verse 17, we see that it says, In these next instructions I'm about to give you, I do not commend you. And then he goes on from there to say that when you gather as a church, it is not for the better. It is for the worse. Paul begins the section by saying, I do not commend you. On top of this, he essentially says that when you gather together, it is a bad thing. Why would Paul make such a a dramatic statement like that? That's a pretty harsh statement. I mean, I know we've established already that this church is messed up and that this church has issues. But so many churches are messed up and have issues. Why would Paul say this about the Corinthian church? Well, I want to take us down a trip of memory lane as we've gone through this series. And I sort of want to just look at some of the issues that Paul has confronted. There had been sex scandals in this church that Paul confronted. People suing one another within the church that Paul confronted. People were continuously taking advantage of their Christian liberties This was essentially the meshing of a Jerry Springer and a Judge Judy episode. Which, just to confess to you, I do not watch either one of those shows. I just want to make that clear this morning. And you shouldn't either if you do. For some of us, this might even remind us of one of our own family reunions. This church was just insane. But then when you incorporate our text today, specifically verse 20 through 22... Where it says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now just to give a little background here, typically in uh, the church... 
in this time period, when they would meet together, they would meet in a house. And it was typically in the house of a wealthy person in that church, simply for the reason that their house most likely was the bigger house, and they could fit more people in it. And when they would gather together, they would start their meeting off with this huge feast, sort of like a potluck, that they called a love feast. This feast was to promote unity and fellowship and one, uh, oneness with one another within that body. After this feast, they would continue on with their church service. They would have communion. They would have a time of worship. They would have a time of either teaching or reading from the Bible. Sounds like a pretty awesome meeting, right? In some ways, it sounds a lot like our meeting. But how awesome would it be to, like, come into church every Sunday morning and we just have a huge breakfast together? That would be great. I'm all for that. Probably not going to happen, but... (laughs) But what... But... What we can tell from this passage this morning, something was off in the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, their love feast was not a love feast. As we read, some members were getting too much to eat. Some members, probably some of the same members that were getting too much to eat, were getting drunk. While others ended up starving. For the Corinthians, it seemed like they were missing the whole point of what this feast was about. Now to give a little bit of background on the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was like the church in a lot of ways. There were some pretty rich people in the church, and there were some pretty poor people in the church. The rich people were able to contribute a lot of food to this meal. They were the ones bringing the filet mignon, the lobster tail, the crab legs, little surf and turf action. And then the poor people, for some of them, they they might have been able to bring some food, maybe some cheesy potatoes or deviled eggs, um, which I love, by the way. Or for some of them, they might have just thought, I can't bring anything. This is the only chance at a good meal I'm going to get all week. Well, from what we can tell from this passage, the art of sharing was lost completely in the Corinthian church. The well-to-do people in this church had little regard for anyone else. They placed their worth on other people based on how big their bank account was. Now, one theory here with this church is that the wealthy people in the church had the flexibility and freedom with their job to sort of get off a little bit early, get off of work a little bit early. And the theory is is that they would get off of work early, they would get their food, and they would head over to the meeting, they would get things set up, they would get things started, and before you know it, they would be huddled into their own little group, and they would start eating the food. And then the poor people in the church, they were bound by their rigid work schedule. And so for them, they went straight from work to the meeting, showing up right on time, or maybe even a couple of minutes late. Well, by the time that they got there, because the wealthy people in the church had formed this habit, by the time they got there, there was nothing left to eat. They walked into a house expecting a meal, only to see that there was no food left, that these well-to-do types were sort of huddled in their own little section of the house, And they were drunk. It's bizarre. I mean, think of how frustrating and how humiliating that would be if you were one of these poorer people in the church. So going back to our original question, why would Paul make such a strong statement that when these people gather together, it is a bad thing? I think I just laid out a pretty good case why. This is why it's a bad thing. Instead of being a church that broke down social barriers... This church accentuated them. Their love feast was meant to promote unity and fellowship and oneness with one another, and instead it caused the church to be far more divided. 
I want to share a, a quote with you from William Barclay. He wrote a commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians, and I just want to read a quote from you on this section that we're going through today in an effort to contrast to you, or offer a contrast to you, of what the ancient church looked like in this day compared to what the the Corinthian church looked like in this section. William Barclay says this, The early church was the one place in all the ancient world where the barriers were down. That world was very rigidly divided. There were the free men and the slaves. There were the Greeks and the barbarians, the people who did not speak Greek, There were the Jews and the Gentiles. There were the Roman citizens and the lesser breeds without the law. There were the cultured and ignorant. The church was the one place where all men could and did come together. Within their own limits, they had solved almost by way the social problem which baffled Rome and baffles Europe still. They had lifted woman to her rightful place, restored the dignity of labor, abolished beggary, and drawn the sting of slavery. The secret of the revolution is that the, selfless, or the selfishness of race and class was forgotten in the, Lord, in the supper of the Lord and a new basis for society found in love of the invisible image of God and men for whom Christ died. A church where social and class distinctions exist is no true church at all. A real church body is a body of men and women united to each other because all are united to Christ. In light of these various issues that we have seen week after week, and today, we see a church in Corinth that wasn't doing church at all. They were simply gathering together to perform religious rituals, and Paul here is taking the time to confront them in hopes that they would be convicted by their sin and they would repent. Now, at the root of their sin, at, at, at the heart of all of this, they're really, you, you really see just an indifference towards one another. You see an indifference to the inclusiveness that the gospel offers all people. Because of their indifference, the Corinthian church was essentially communicating that you could come and eat at the table, but only if you reach the standards that we've created for you. The problem with this is that it is completely contradictory to the invitation that Jesus Christ offers all of us through the gospel. The gospel says, come. Everyone, come to the table. The rich, the poor, the black, the white, and everything in between all have a seat at the table of the Lord through the gospel. So when Paul says it's for the worse that they gather, because of these things, He is inferring that the better church looks like a church where racial and social barriers are non-issues. For the better looks like a church where it doesn't matter if you live in the suburbs or if you live in the inner city. Now, to be honest with you, when I read books like this in the Bible, I can tend to get a little judgmental towards the people who are being written to or the people who are being written about. And so as I began to study for this teaching, and as I read through this verse a few times, I, just to be honest with you, I got judgmental towards these rich people in the Corinthian church. I remember thinking things like, are you kidding me right now? How can you not see that what you are doing is wrong? How can you not see that what you are doing flies in the face of everything that the gospel says? 
But as I got into it more and more, and as I studied more and more, the Lord began to convict my own heart. And this is one of the many things that I love, and sometimes my flesh hates, about the Word of God. The Lord, through the Holy Spirit, uses His Word to help us search our own hearts. That's the whole point of this series. That's why we called it Grow, in hopes that this book would help us to search our own hearts. Most of the time, this isn't a fun process. But at least for me, it's a way of knowing that the Lord is working in my life. That the Lord cares about my heart. That he cares about my holiness. And that he cares about the church. I got pretty convicted by this text because I was reminded that I have had moments in my life where I formed standards for other people. And if these people didn't meet these standards that I had formed, they were not worth my time. I can remember moments where I would, I have intentionally left people off of an invite list to a hangout time or to a party because for whatever reason they weren't like me or they were awkward to be around or they made me uncomfortable I can remember times, even here on Sunday morning, to my shame, taking extra steps out of the way to avoid talking to someone who I thought was awkward or who made me uncomfortable again. I can remember moments in my life where I, tr- I-, I regarded other brothers and sisters in Christ less than me because they thought differently politically or they thought differently socially than I did. I was judging them, and I thought, of, I thought that they were less than me in some way. Thinking through these moments and being aware of these moments has helped me to realize that in these moments, I am no better than these well-to-do people in the Corinthian church. I essentially had the same attitude towards my own brothers and sisters in Christ. When we have this heart towards others, we are being completely indifferent to the reality that Jesus loves them just as much as they love us. I was completely indifferent to the reality that Jesus loved those people that I avoided, that I left out, that I treated differently. Jesus loves them and values them just as much as he loves me. Why should we love? Why should we be united to each other as a church, as the body of Christ? Romans 15, 7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. 1 John 4.19 says that we ought to love others because Christ first loved us. And Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died. While we were broken, while we were undesirable, while we were unlovable, while we were at our absolute worst in life, God poured his relentless love out on us through Jesus Christ on the cross. And not only this, He's called us into fellowship and oneness with him. And the Corinthians were completely missing this. Their love feast that was supposed to promote oneness and fellowship with one another was a self-feast that consisted of self-indulgence and a disregard for anyone else. And the irony behind all of this was that the Lord's Supper was sort of like caught in the middle Now, since we're sort of getting on the topic of the Lord's Supper, I want us to sort of look at our next section here in our text today. 
Let's pick it up in verse 23 and go through verse 26. Everyone doing okay so far? All right. Got a lot to cover here this morning. All right, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, in, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Forever, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Really, this passage is broken up into three parts here. The first section of the chapter, or the first section of this, first part of this section is a part where Paul is sort of bringing up and confronting and rebuking the issue that the Corinthians are struggling with right now. This part that we just read right now it sort of gets into instruction, a, 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 a section of instruction. Paul begins to offer instruction. And this is one way that we know Paul loves the Corinthian church. He doesn't just write, he doesn't just write in the chapter, hey, you stupid people, quit doing this. You're being terrible. And that's it. He offers instruction. He offers reminders. And just by reading this section, it seems like Paul does take an, a, an abrupt turn in this section. And he cites the Lord's Supper that had been passed down to him by Jesus himself. Well, why does he do this? Well, one reason he doesn't do this is out of concern for the Corinthian church that maybe they just don't know what the Lord's Supper is about. Maybe they don't know that you're supposed to bring bread, and maybe they don't know you're supposed to bring wine, or at least in our case, grape juice. Maybe they're completely ignorant to this whole thing. That's not the case. Paul knows that they know how to take the Lord's Supper, and one of the way that, ways that he, he knows that, and we know that, and we can see that, is in verse 23, he says, For I received, and I passed on to you. These words make this sentence a past tense sentence, which means the Corinthians have heard this narrative before, and it's nothing new to them. So why does he recite this? Well, I believe Paul is trying to accomplish two things here by reciting this. The first thing that he's doing is he's reminding them of what Jesus did on their behalf. By mentioning the broken bread and by mentioning the cup of wine that Jesus freely offered his disciples, he's reminding them that Jesus freely offered his broken body and his shed, and his shed blood for the Corinthian church. Paul seems to think because of their actions, this is something that they have gotten away from. This is something that they have just simply forgot about. The second thing that he's trying to do is he's trying to offer and show a contrast between Jesus' heart the night of the Last Supper and his actions towards the apostles and the Corinthians' heart when they take the Lord's Supper and the way that they treat others. Paul's ultimate aim here is to get at the, tr- at the heart of the Corinthians. Sure, they may have eaten the bread. Sure, they may have taken the wine from the cup. But from what we see here, Paul is saying, that isn't enough. We see that he's saying, you're missing the whole point of what the Lord's Supper is about. When you treat people this way, you are not understanding what Jesus Christ did for you. And this is why Paul says that when you gather... It is not the Lord's Supper that you're taking. Again, for them it had become a religious ritual to do for the sake of doing. And this is exactly what God rebukes 
Israel for in the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, through, uh, 29 verse 13. He says, They draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's the same thing that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for in Matthew 15, 7. Paul is rebuking the Corinthians here because externally, everything looks good. You know, if we were sitting in their service as a new person, maybe we came late after the meal and, you know, didn't realize people ate all the food and got drunk, and we just saw that they were taking the bread and taking the grape juice, we would think, oh, they're doing communion, that's great. It's good that this church is doing communion. But because Paul has heard about these things that have, has gone on in the church, he knows that their heart is far from the Lord and their gathering. What kind of heart does God want us to have? Psalms, Psalm 51 says it. God wants us to have a repentant heart that's well aware of our brokenness and our need for him. So let's keep reading here. In verse 27, we'll go, th- we'll go through verse 32. Paul continues on here and he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged at all. But when the Lord judges us, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So Paul here, in this section, he continues to address the issue. He continues to offer instruction. And he does so by issuing a stern warning. In verse 30, we see that because they had repeatedly taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, God judged them. And God began to discipline them. Now, I just, I want to pause for a second, and I want to acknowledge that this section seems a little crazy. This section seems like, it sort of seems like the God of the Old Testament, where, you know, his children were disobedient, and he got angry at them, and he disciplined them. And he either killed them, or, you know, inflicted something on them. And I, so I want to acknowledge that. And I also want to give a qualifier and, and sort of explain this section a little bit in two different views on this section. Some people see this verse and, and they believe, and, and, and it is very well possible, that God's discipline and God's judgment here is active discipline. And what I mean by that is that God did, in fact, inflict sickness, inflict weakness, and also inflict death on some of these people because of their hearts and because of their disobedience. That's very possible. A, section, a, a second option, however, though, is that God's discipline and God's judgment here is passive. And that God simply let these people continue on in their depravity. And the result of them giving in to these self-indulgences, as a result of them continuing in their depravity, as a result of them overeating and overdrinking, they got sick. Some commentators have even speculated that this sickness is referring to heart disease, heart attacks, alcoholism, from overindulging in these things. I'm not sure really which interpretation here is correct, and honestly, I don't really care. I don't think it's that important. What's important here is the principle that God disciplines his children when they begin to stray from him. God disciplines his children when we are disobedient towards him. 
The amazing thing about God's discipline, though, and if we'll see it here in verse 32, is that God's discipline on his sons and daughters, even in, even in, his, in his discipline and judgment, he is gracious towards us. He doesn't just discipline us to inflict pain on us and to watch us squirm. He disciplines us so that we would not be condemned by the world. It says that God disciplined these people because time after time they were approaching the Lord's table without discerning the body. This is why God was disciplining this church. Well, what does it look like to discern the body? I think that's a good question to answer. If God is disciplining people for this, I think it's good that we know what it looks like to discern the body. The NLT says, honoring the body. What Paul is getting at here, and for the most part, there are, again, there are two views on this verse. The first view reads discerning the body. They read the word body there, and they, they believe it to mean Christ's physical body. And so when we come together as a church, and we come down and we take communion, and we take the broken bread, if we are not discerning Christ's physical body in some way, we are taking communion in an unworthy manner. The second view says, and would read this verse to mean, and this is the view that I tend to gravitate towards, considering the context of this passage, they view the word body in this verse to mean the spiritual body of Christ. To discern to honor, to recognize the spiritual body of Christ. Well, what makes up the spiritual body of Christ? What makes up Jesus' spiritual body? Just shout it out. The church. Bingo. It's the church. It's you and me. If we are in Christ today, we are Christ's spiritual body. We are the body of Christ. Because the Corinthians were so divided in so many ways, they were not discerning the spiritual body of Christ. They were not recognizing one another. They were not holding one another to a high regard. And God was disciplining them for this. When I think of discerning the body, I think of Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 through 4. It says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the kind of oneness and unity that Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthian church. Philippians 2 is a great example of what it looks like to discern and honor the body of Christ. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on here in chapter 11. We're going to pick it up in verse 33. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, if you're anything like me, I hate to be left sort of out in the dark, out on a limb at the end of a movie— and so if you're like me, that last sentence just drives me nuts because it's like, what did he talk about with the Corinthians, you know, when he came to them? We'll, we'll never know. Um, it's a little frustrating. Well, what Paul is doing here is, so he started out in this section, he started out confronting the issue, rebuking the church, and then he moved on to giving them instruction 
and sort of guidance, and he, he, he moved on and, and gave them some reminders of the gospel, and now he's moving into just practical steps. He's getting very practical here. This phrase um, in verse 34, or I'm sorry, verse 33, when he says, when you come together, this phrase in the original language that this letter was written in, again, which is Greek, literally translates out to say, take care of one another. So Paul is, he's getting really practical here. He's basically saying, look guys, when you gather together, when you meet together, when you have these love feasts, take care of one another. Wait for one another. Regard one another as more important as yourself. Make sure everyone around you is taken care of. Be hospitable to one another. This is the complete opposite of where this church was at this time. Our horizontal relationships with one another and our oneness with one another should be a reflection of our vertical relationship and our oneness with Christ. So in closing here, the question I want to ask us is how do we write ourselves into all of this? How are we as individuals and as a church able to grow through this text? Well, in a few moments, we're going to take communion. And we normally take communion on the first Sunday of the month, but it just seemed like we should take it today. It just seemed like a no-brainer because we're talking about communion so much. And so we're going to take communion today. And I just, I have three application steps that I want us to be mindful of as we take communion. When Paul recites the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians, there are three things in there that he, he or Christ tells them to do. The first thing that they're told to do, which is, it comes directly from Christ, is when we take the bread and when we take the juice, we are to do it in remembrance of Jesus. And I recognize for a lot of us, if we've been Christians for a long time, and we've been in church for a long time, we've heard that phrase a million times. And maybe for some of us, it just seems like it's this ethereal, sort of vague thing that we're told to do, and we really don't know what it looks like or means to remember Christ when we take communion. Well, to remember Christ when we take communion is to remember his death on the cross. It's to remember that gruesome, bloody scene that if we've seen the passion of the Christ, for some of us, we can't even look at the screen because it is so horrendous. Remembering Christ is to remember and reflect on his death on the cross. The purpose of this is it serves as a reminder of the gospel for each of us in here. As Christians, one of the most important things we can do is remind ourselves constantly of the gospel. Especially when we have an enemy that is continually working against us, that is continually trying to convince us and, and, and shake us of our assurance in the Lord and our standing before the Lord. We as believers need to remind ourselves of the gospel and coming down and seeing the broken bread, which represents Christ's broken body, and seeing that the deep purple grape juice that represents Christ's blood that was poured out for you and me is a reminder that he died for you and me. So remembering Jesus in communion is a remembrance of the gospel. The second thing that we're called to do, that Paul calls, calls us to do, 
is to examine our hearts. Again, what does this look like? There's a pastor in St. Louis whose name is uh, Darren Patrick. He taught on this passage with his church, and he offered this analogy to his church as a way of explaining what it looks like to examine our hearts. And I thought it was a really good analogy, so I'm going to share it with you today. He used the analogy of a heart examination as a medical examination. Okay? When we go into a medical examination, we're essentially asking the doctor to look at parts of our body that we don't show anyone else, maybe besides our spouse, if we're married. Hopefully no one else. We're saying, doc, look at me. Examine me. Check me out. And what we're asking the doctor to look for is sickness, is illness, outside or inside of our body, with the idea and with the hope that if illness and if sickness is found, there will be some steps that we can take to kill that sickness, to kill that illness. When we examine our hearts before taking communion, we're coming before the Lord and we're asking the Lord to expose our hearts, to expose the deepest, darkest crevices of our hearts, and we're asking him, Lord, show me, reveal to me spiritual illness in my heart that maybe I'm aware of, maybe I'm not aware of, so that I can repent before you, so that I can grow closer to you. This is what it looks like to examine our hearts. It's getting before the Lord and saying, Lord, I know my heart is wicked. I know my heart is is broken in a lot of ways. Please, Reveal these sins to me that, are un, that I have not repented from yet so that I can repent. The last thing we're called to do is to, is to discern the body. I sort of described what that looks like. Hope that was clear for you. And, you know, I, I shared some moments. Um, so, our, you know, I sort of want to just lay out what it looks like practically to discern the body in communion. I shared some shameful moments in my life where I have treated people very poorly. And um, I'm sure for most of us, we have had those moments. And maybe even a specific person popped up into your head when I was talking about my personal moments. Maybe when you're doing your heart examination, the Lord will reveal to you that, hey, you, you've been treating Billy Bob really wrong. I don't know why I said Billy Bob. Maybe you've been treating him very badly. Maybe you don't hold him in high regard like you hold others. So as we're coming to the table and as we sit down and we're reflecting on our hearts, I just want you to ask yourselves a few questions, okay? Just a couple of questions here. The first one is, have I, have I treated others this way? If so, Lord, show me. Reveal, reveal that to me. Do I gravitate towards others who are like me, exclusively like me, people who dress like me, people who act like me, Are those the only people that I'm surrounding myself with? Do I write other people off? Do I leave other people out intentionally because I don't want to be around them? They're inconvenient. They're they're an inconvenience to me and I don't want to be around them. Ask yourself these questions. Be honest with yourselves. You know, a lot of times these scenarios in my life have played out in my small group and in church of all places. If we're we're struggling in this area, if we're giving into this sin in our lives, we are creating divisions in our church. 
And lastly, I just, if maybe you're here this morning and you're on the receiving end of being, being treated that way. Maybe it's both in your life. Maybe there's someone in your life that you're not treating well and there's someone that's not treating you well. But either way, that, that, that's a terrible feeling to be treated that way. It's humiliating. It's not fun. And if that's you this morning, I, I want to encourage you that God wants to meet you in that place in your heart. God wants to comfort you and speak truth to you about how he sees you, how he loves you, where you stand before him. I'm going to pray here. And uh, after I pray, the ushers can come down and release you by row to take communion. And again, I would just, I would really ask you to, to consider taking your time this morning. Taking your time to remember, examine, and discern the body of Christ before we take the bread and the juice. Maybe for some of you, it takes the rest of the service before you take the bread and the the juice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so amazed by you this morning. Lord, we adore you. We praise you, Father. Thank you that you're mindful of us, Lord. Lord, thank you that you don't have a standard that we need to meet up to, we we need to add up to before we can come to you, Lord. Thank you that you simply say, come, I love you, just the way you are. I want you, you're mine. That's true for all of us in here. For those who haven't experienced that, Lord, I pray that you would be putting that on their heart right now so they can. And for those of us who have experienced that, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of it. I pray that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation this morning, Lord. And Father, if, if we have ever belittled the act of taking communion, Lord, I pray this morning would help us to value communion a little bit more. Lord, thank you that you care about our hearts, you care about our holiness, and we pray that you would work on our hearts this morning. And God, we pray as we respond in singing to you, Father, you would be pleased and you would be honored. You would be glorified. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening and joining our mission. For more content or to learn more about us, visit linworthroadchurch.com.